All right. Thanks for joining me, everybody. My guest is Leo Holman. Leo is an investigative reporter. He writes for numbers of publications, including World Net Daily. He is the author of books. Leo, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Chuck. You know, I'm looking at your website. You've got some excellent uh, articles up right now. Media ignores latest wave of horrific attacks on Christians around the world, particularly in Islamic countries. Um, you also have a good article here, Democrats hand GOP juicy fodder for midterm elections. But and both are, are fascinating topics. But before we go there, I want to ask you about the big news of the day, of course, this being a news-driven program. And that is President Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh for the, the uh, Supreme Court position uh, vacated uh, or being vacated by Anthony Kennedy. What do you think? Well, uh, I think that President Trump was very honest and upfront from the start. There were no surprises. He had the number of uh, candidates that the pool of candidates that he was said he would draw from uh, since before he was elected, and he stuck to the script. Uh, there's no surprises. Uh, he chose a very conservative judge who says that he will uh, stick to the text, stick to the original meaning of the Constitution. Uh, I know that the left is going absolutely berserk, uh, and in many cases they've been caught, uh, you know, sending out press releases where it still had, we oppose an X, you know, they hadn't even filled in the name yet. Right, <laughs> you know? know, really. Yeah, so one picture where they show pictures of um, their posters with each of the judge nominees' names on them. Right, <clears throat> so, right. Yeah, you know, they're going to figure out which one to run with. Um, Absolutely. So, I mean, I think I think of the four finalists, uh, Kavanaugh has the longest record uh, that we can look at, and I'm sure there'll be lots of ana analysis of that record in the in the days ahead. Uh, many many cases to uh, look at and read, and I have not done that yet. I don't know if you have started, but uh, uh, I'm sure that we're probably going to find uh, a candidate, a, a, a judge who's uh, very conservative, but perhaps not as conservative as some of the others on the list. Right. Uh, so uh, what are your feelings about that? Well, he's been on the D.C. bench for 12 years, and apparently he's a prolific writer. He's written over 300 decisions. Plus, he's written books and he's written articles. And um, I'm afraid that he might end up dealing with some of the same problems that Judge Bork dealt with, who was also a prolific writer. In that um, knowing the left, they're going to go over this with a microscope and look at every little word and, oh, well, he lied because he said March 2nd, not March 3rd, you know, this sort right. of thing. Um, and, and try to get at him with, with the a thousand cuts, you know, on, on these little technicalities. Um, as far as his judicial temperament, I thought that he laid it out very well. Um, in his in his acceptance speech from after President Trump introduced him, we said that he supports his, his three principles in his judicial philosophy. He supports the Constitution, he supports the rule of law, and he supports precedent. And his comment about precedent is an indirect way of saying that he would not seek to overturn Roe versus Wade. Right um, now, conservatives may be upset about that, and he has said so explicitly. Well, what I would suggest is that it's the best choice for right now, because first of all, he's in the middle on it. While he won't 
overthrow Roe versus Wade because he respects precedent and he respects settled law. At the same time, he's not going to expand Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. And there's been a major fight since that decision on the one hand to get rid of it from the uh, conservatives, but from the left to expand it. And if you read the language of Roe versus Wade, and I've read it, it actually is fairly conservative by today's standards. It, it really allows the states to regulate abortion policy. It does not allow abortion in the third trimester. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's a fairly, by today's standards, conservative decision. And I by think that Judge Kavanaugh has indicated that he's going to stick by that, the letter of it and not see it expanded. So to my way of thinking, that is appropriate for these times. You know, we don't want to have World War Three over this. So well, it seems like the left is geared up for that. Uh, you know, I think they're looking for that, Chuck. If, if, if it's not going to happen over abortion, I think, you know, it could happen over immigration. It could happen over guns. Uh, I, I feel like the left is, is pushing for that. Uh, they want it. Uh, I don't know if they're ready for it, but they want it. That much seems clear because it seems like, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what the issue, whether it be uh, the immigration program, uh, whether it be guns, uh, whether it be abortion, they, uh, they are pushing their, follow their base to become more and more radical, to get out in the streets, to challenge police. Uh, and I don't know how much further they're willing to push it, but uh, so far we haven't really seen the end of the envelope, I don't think. Uh, so uh, so yeah. I, I'm not so sure that if it's not abortion, it won't be something else. I hope I'm wrong. Well, I think that what you're describing is true, and it is on those issues that they're going to lose. You know, they'll win on the emotional shrill uh, charges like that, that President Trump has something against African-American men and women, which everyone knows is a lie. But that's the sort of thing that they've, that's been their strategy, I think, from day one, to train, claim that he's got something against groups of people, which is untrue. And yet that has fallen flat. So if they're going to go after him and they're going to go after conservatives on these very issues that you've mentioned, whether it be abortion or whether it be immigration, they're going to lose on that because if we really get down to explaining exactly what is what is it that they advocate, it's not popular and it's not even um, coherent uh, on their part. Well, I think let's take a look at immigration, which is the subject of my book, Stealth Invasion. Uh, I think what they want uh, is the complete 100 percent elimination of borders. They want a revolving yeah, a revolving door at the border. Uh, you, we could argue as to why they want that, uh, and I think it might vary a little bit. I don't know that there's a monolithic uh, opinion on the left as to why they want open borders. But I think the, it, it's beyond debate now that they do want open borders. And, uh, you know, but, but they never come right out and say that. Uh, it's always some emotional issue, you know, the latest one being the separation of the children from the parents. Right. They don't care about separation, separating children from parents. Uh, you know, this is a party that has argued for years that uh, the child can never be too young 
to, to be taken out of the home and put in uh, preschool. I think it's down to age three at least now where they're saying the children should be put in preschool at age three uh, while both parents are out pursuing their careers. And, uh, you know, and, and then you could also tie that in with the abortion issue. They have no problem with, with ripping a child out of a mother's womb. So certainly they can't be all that concerned about uh, children being separated from their parents temporarily, of all things, right. uh, when they illegal cro illegally cross the border. So the issue is never the issue that they're putting their finger on. That is only a mechanism to get them from point A to point B in their political agenda. And I think that, well, first of all, you're absolutely right. They want open borders and they won't come out and admit it because to explain that is impossible. It, it really gets into the ultimate dream, which is that borders are irrelevant and we should have world entities, you know, world order. Um, but, but on the practical side, the way the left media covered that story was so dishonest. It wasn't right. fake news outright because they used the facts, but it did not give any context. It didn't give any right. instruction over this overall issue, which is that the immigration policies have been going on since Clinton and that they're not good. You know, I mean, the separation of families is something that's not new. We just it just came out that these pictures of children in cages were taken during the Obama administration right. and that there's over a thousand children now that are missing because they were returned to people who are questionable, including possibly gang members and drug dealers. So, you know, their the record, if you really want to do a contextual examination of the issue, it doesn't come off as so good for them. And it comes off as much more nuanced than, than what they like. They just want to use it like anything else as a punching bag to attack Trump. And you're quite right. Also, Leo, they don't give a damn about children. They just want to stop President Trump for reasons other than immigration. They don't like Trump because of a simple concept, and that is, you know, America first. That is the ultimate. When Trump talks about that, he means it. It's not just a lot of rhetoric like in the past. And that drives them crazy. I mean, they don't like, they, they think it's chauvinistic. It's, you know, it's imperialist. It's all that. The idea of a, of a nation putting its own interests first, which is natural and normal, just like you put your interests first, your family's interests first, it drives them nuts. And this is what, this is why they despise Trump. Because not only does he articulate that and threaten to wake up the rest of the country in terms of the basic common sense of it, but but it, it goes against everything they've been working for for a century. Uh, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and the number one enemy, I think, is nations. Uh, they want to eliminate nations because nations are evil. Uh, nations lead to nationalism which they consider evil. Uh, and so they know, they know what they're doing. Like I said, there's differences of opinion on the left, depending who you talk to as to why they want these open borders. But that's only because certain, you know, there's certain levels uh, on the left, like on the right, as far as people and, and, and their intelligence and, and knowing the background and the history and, and exactly how to accomplish things. I think the ones at the very top, are the ones that we can agree on are for open borders for the very purpose that they are against nations. And they know that the 
best, quickest, and most effective way to eliminate nations is to eliminate borders. You bring in, you start to bring in uh, uh, nefarious uh, entities with, you know, the gang entities, the human traffickers, the people who are completely uh, without morals. Uh, but not only that, uh, you start to bring in uh, groups of people who do not intend to assimilate. And, and that is one of the main themes of my book, that it's not immigration per se that is uh, the problem. It's the weaponization of immigration uh, by the new left, by the neo-Marxists, uh, where they take these groups, uh, they encourage them not to assimilate. Uh, they plant them secretly into communities, cities, uh, without you know any any sort of vote or any sort of uh, referendum from the people. Yes, we want to uh, expand our city to include this multicultural or that multicultural uh, entity from overseas, and uh, so it starts out uh, very. Uh, subtle. People don't really even realize what's happened to their community until it's too late, until there's a, a huge uh, foreign uh, uh, presence that uh, which by itself would not be there would not be anything wrong with that. You know, America, as everyone knows, is a nation of immigrants. My uh, my people came here just a couple of generations ago. Uh, you know, that is not the problem. We are not anti-immigrant. I am not anti-immigrant. It's it's a new type of immigrant, which is not really an immigrant at all. Uh, an immigrant uh, goes uh, without saying that you intend to assimilate into your new homeland, your adoptive country. What they are bringing in now, uh, these people from Somalia and Sudan and uh, Syria, they have no intention whatsoever of adopting American culture, of assimilating into American culture, even accepting America as a sort of uh, a place that they can call their own. You know, they're, they're still Syrian Americans. They're still Somali Americans. They're, they don't call themselves just Americans, uh, which my people who came from Italy and Germany, you know, so the left has tried that with them as well. Oh, you're Italian. No, I'm American. And mm -hmm. most of my family would say that whether they're political or not, they would sort of recoil uh, if you if you describe them as being an Italian American or a German American. Right. Th that's not the case with this new uh, with this new genre, this new uh, type of immigrant that's being brought in and the left knows it. They're, they're being brought here. They're being uh, housed in enclaves. Uh, they speak Somali and, uh, even after they've been here for 30 years, uh, still can't speak good English. Uh, you know, they're, they're coming with their hands out. Uh, the right, Somali refugees immediately. At 100%, yes. Our, you know, and so this was not the same type of immigrant that we saw in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. How is it, Leo, because I've observed this in my own community here in Boston, um, that, that they do become concentrated into certain neighborhoods. Is that something that's planned by the government? I mean, I mean, I'll give the example. I know this sounds a little controversial, but in my neighborhood, there has been a very large influx of Muslim immigrants. Uh, we think they probably, they might be from, from um, the Palestinian territories, they might be from Syria. And I'm seeing a lot more, you know, because of the multiculturalism, there's 
is not this real desire like my grandparents and great grandparents had to be to Americanize and to become a part of the melting pot. Right. But there's the emphasis, as you say, on the left to maintain their ethnic identity as the first thing. I mean, yeah, my family still has ethnic identity, but it's not the main subject. The main subject is Americanism. Um, and the result is that we have people in the area who are continuing with uh, Muslim characteristics. And in one case, there's this, a woman in the neighborhood who has a, a burqa from head to foot. You can only see her eyes. And um, there's a couple of situations like that. And yeah, I'm walking sensitively here because I don't want to sound like I've got something against any group. But, but the fact is that my synagogue has been threatened. And there's been people that have been taking pictures of it and driving by, and it's been reported to police, and they've advised us to lock the doors and have a guard. And they post policemen now when there's services on, on Saturday, on the, on the Shabbat. And it's because of this influx. And uh, right around the corner from our synagogue is a Palestinian center and a mosque, which they have every right to have. But with this attitude of sort of anti-assimilationism and ethnic identity, it's created problems where in the past they may not have existed in that there, there isn't this. In fact, there's almost a disdain for becoming more American or appearing American. It's seen as a virtue right. to maintain your ethnic identity as the first aspect of who you are. Um, so my question to you, Leo, is, is this a planned thing? And when I say, is it a planned thing, is there literally a plan that you've uncovered as an investigative reporter to indicate that the government is deliberately, uh, concentrating people in certain areas, advocating ethnic identity? Uh, I believe so, Chuck. Uh, in my book, there's a story of a woman, uh, that you can read about. She infiltrated a government conference call uh, that was led by Cecilia Munez, who was President Obama's, uh, one of his uh, chief domestic policy advisors a couple of years ago, about a year and a half before he left office, I believe is, is when this conference call took place. And there was a, a dozen or more people on the call. And this woman uh, somehow got the code and she dialed in and just listened. Uh, and the call used some very bizarre language. Uh, the uh, main speakers were talking about planting, uh, first of all, preparing the soil of the receiving communities uh, who would receive the, uh, the, the Muslim refugees. Uh, the soil was the, was the native born population. And uh, they talked about planting seedlings into the soil after it was wa watered and prepared uh, by groups like uh, Welcoming America. And, and uh, they would nurture the seedling until it was able to mature and stand on its own. And at that point, it would take over, they said, the host community. Hmm. And so, yes, I do believe they're very much aware of what they're doing. They're trying to cause destabilization. That's the number one goal, to destabilize cities, counties, states, 
a little bit at a time. We've seen it. If you want to see what it looks like, uh, I would suggest, uh, and there are some stories in my book about this as well, various towns in Minnesota uh, where, you know, these were once cohesive uh, places where, yeah, there was minorities, you know, black people, white people got along fine. Uh <clears throat> You know, uh, and, and these are now destabilized cities where uh, students feel like uh, when they go to school, they don't op they're, they're not treated the same way as the minorities from Somalia. Uh, even black Americans have gotten into many uh, run ins with the Somalis. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, and then in other areas, uh, there's a, even a, you look at Michigan. Uh, the city of Sterling Heights. They right. had a big uh, mosque battle there uh, last year, and it ended up going to court. And uh, well, actually, it was settled before it went to court. The city caved. There was a lawsuit brought by the Obama administration, and uh, the city caved and and agreed to pay out a settlement and send all their uh, employees, city employees, to sensitivity training. So they could learn how to not be anti-Muslim in their thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, they put this mosque. It wasn't just that they were building a mosque. It was where they were putting it. They were putting it right in a, a residential neighborhood that was populated mainly with Chaldean Christians from Iraq. Uh -huh. These are people who left Iraq to escape persecution from the Muslim majority there. They come to America thinking that they're getting away from that. And now they have a mosque being built right in their own neighborhood where they're going to have to listen to the call to prayer and uh, and be subject like your synagogue to threats and stuff like this. So, yes, I do believe that the end goal is destabilization. And then we can we can talk about why that might be to their benefit, uh, Chuck. But but I do think right. that's the goal. And also, when we talk about these mosques, we're not necessarily talking about, you know, your local Protestant church or your local Catholic church or your synagogue. These, and not all, some, are these mega mosques. We have one in Boston that are funded by foreign sources, some of which are on uh, terrorist lists like Hamas and others. Absolutely. And that they have been... Uh, you know, incubators for terrorism. I mean, I'm sorry to put it that way, but it's something that the FBI has done a lot of reporting on, at least while they were able to go in and investigate, which they now are not able to do. Right. And that the Muslim community's leadership itself um, is radicalized, and it's not exactly, um, you know, the, the, the sort of leadership that we would want to have that's advocating a pro-American attitude. Now, I'm not suggesting that all Muslims follow that, but, um, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a problem. I mean, I, I think that to a certain extent, the same could be said of certain Hispanic organizations like CSPES and, and Mecha. Uh, these organizations, which get a lot of grant money from groups like the Ford Foundation and other left-wing uh, mega foundations, which have a, really the bulk of foundation money and have had it since going way back, they advocate things like Atslan and the North America nation and, uh, you know, the erasing of the borders and making uh, Spanish a mandatory language and, and a rather radical agenda. 
And I think the problem here is that the U.S. government, in the case at least of the Obama administration, and I'm not sure that is continued under Trump, and much of our liberal establishment, as particularly expressed by these big foundations like the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Group, the Carnegie Group, I mean, these are mega, mega foundations, that they have tended to favor the radical groups over the more moderate groups. You know, if we had favored a more moderate Muslim leadership in this country, you know, that wanted to, you know, become more American and assimilate while maintaining their Islamic identity, um, you know, like uh, Zudi Jassar, who has been a guest of my show, um, he's a Muslim who is, you know, identifying the nature of the jihadists and who is fearful of, you know, them infiltrating his community. So it's not a matter of being against Muslims. It's a matter of whether or not we're going to support the radical element, the jihadist element. And that's what, what you're talking about here. I mean, that's what's going on. Um, talk it's, the, it's, it, it's not only the jihadist element. It's also the uh, it is the jihadist element. But there's two types of jihadist. And I believe that they're equally dangerous. There's there's the violent jihadist uh, and, and there's the Islamist. And the Islamist is, is basically a patient jihadist. He's for the exact same end game as the jihadist, the violent jihadist, which is the establish, establishment of Sharia law uh, in the land where they are trying to sub the land that they are trying to subjugate. But they're not for violence. They're just for doing it through waging a sort of cultural war against our institutions, you know, and we see that happening. And that's really what my book is about. My book is not really about terrorism. Everybody knows terrorism is a problem, but very few people have looked at this other type of jihadism, the civilization jihadism, which is takes the slow road to the same goal, which is Sharia law and, and, and the principles of Sharia law. Number one on the list, Chuck, they always start with this, is the blasphemy law. And 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 and, right. and and anything that is critical of Islam, anything that uh, holds Islam to account the way we do Christianity and Judaism and other religions is forbidden. And uh, we see that sweeping the globe right now. That is probably the biggest unreported story mm. on the planet right now, in my opinion, is Western non-Muslim countries, Germany, the UK. Belgium, Sweden, Canada, implementing these hate speech laws that make it illegal, criminalizing speech that uh, in a free country has, has never been criminalized before, uh, i.e. criticizing Islam, holding it to account for its violent terrorism, criticizing the uh, civilizational jihad methods of waging lawfare and threatening employers, threatening government, threatening everybody with lawsuits uh, if they don't give Islam special concessions. We've seen law enforcement inf influenced by this lawfare. You just mentioned earlier one case of it, the way they no longer monitor the radical mosques. Uh, the law, uh, we have, I have cases documented in my book in Minnesota where police have treated uh, Muslim criminals with a different standard than they do other criminals. Uh, there was a neighborhood in Minneapolis on Lake Calhoun that was terrorized, Chuck, for three straight days 
by a mob of Somali youth uh, yelling jihad, threatening to rape a woman, beating up a dog. Three, not one day, not two days, but three days in a row. And, you know, even though the neighbors continuously called police, they could never seem to get there on time to make any uh, arrests. Mm. Uh, we, we've seen it more recently with a case in Minneapolis where a young 26-year-old woman uh, was uh, walking home from work in, at, in, the, in the nice section of Minneapolis, uptown area, where they have the, the glitzy retail establishments. She worked at the Apple store, and she walked home every night after dark uh, from this uh, Apple store. Well, uh, a young Somali man must have uh, been watching her because he attacked her one night. This was just before Christmas. Uh, I think it was December 13th of last year. Uh, and he was trying to drag her off the street into a more secluded area. Now, what do you think he was had? In, you know, and, and she described him in detail. She described what he looked like, what he was wearing, that he had a Somali accent. He had a low-cut uh, afro. He, he had on a certain, I forget, type of clothing, um, and he had a Somali accent. Um, the police called that a failed robbery. She oh. came out later and said, you know what? He never asked for my purse. He never tried to get my report purse as he was dragging her through the snow. He stabbed her 14 times. The mm. poor thing survived. I don't know how. By a, Oh, I, it was a good Samaritan. Heard her screams and came and scared the man off. That was the only reason she survived. Yeah. Uh, and so, but no arrest to this day. A, and the police called it a failed robbery. <sighs> lying, lying. And, and yeah. another case, the Mall of America, where two brothers were uh, stabbed by a Somali. You may remember this I one got a little, a little yep. bit more press. That one got a little more press. And uh, they said that was a failed robbery, that that yeah. uh, the man was trying to steal the clothes, some of the clothes they were trying on at the Macy's store, and that uh, one of the brothers intervened, and then the Somali stabbed. No. When the Somali went to court about a month and a half after it happened, he told the court point blank, I was on a mission for Allah, and I was there to do jihad. It was never reported uh, in the original case. Police called it a failed robbery. And then two months later, you know, he goes to court. It makes a small story in the uh, right. in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. So the, the people are not being told what's really going on here. No, I mean, I mean, uh, just to add one more example, the New York Times has reported in pretty much in the 19, late 1990s, I don't know if it's still going on, a huge spate of murders of young women by their fathers, by their brothers. You know, the, 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 it's an over and over again in the greater New York area, in New Jersey and in, in, in other neighborhoods. And they did not mention the fact that these people happened to be Muslims so that right. there was no context for it. It was just right. a, a terrible murder. Um but but what you're saying, I mean, when you describe civilizational jihad and you know, as with its subversive tactics and its dishonesty, it kind of reminds me of the way the old communism used to work, right? Yes, you, know, you had absolutely. open bloody revolution where you know Lenin and the Bolsheviks would come in and they'd murder six million people, and then you had the subversion. I mean, this is outlined in Marx's manifesto. 
you know, adapt to the ways of the country. Lying is okay. I mean, in fact, it's a virtue if it helps further the agenda of the revolution. Maybe this is why the left has this kind of tacit, almost symbiotic relationship with the the Islamists. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a conscious, uh, uh, you know, open alliance, but there's certain philosophical antecedents that resonate uh, amongst the more radical elements of Islam with the more radical elements of the left. Maybe that's, I mean, I don't mean to simplify here, but that could be part of why our liberal left establishment is so protective of this uh, Islamist agenda. I think you're really on to something there, uh, Chuck. There's a document that was uncovered by the FBI uh, in 2004 and presented at the Holy Land Foundation trial, which was a big terror funding trial where uh, these Islamists that we're speaking about in the United States were funneling money to Hamas. And uh, this this document really lays it all out there exactly as you're you're talking about this concept, which was the old communist uh, theory of boring from within. Mm -hmm. And uh, this explanatory memorandum for the brothers in North America, as it was called, uh, talks about that. And it talks about uh, uh, that the brothers would be in North America must realize that they are engaged in a form of grand jihad. And they didn't mean violent jihad. See, that's where right. Americans don't understand. A form of grand jihad where they would uh, infiltrate and destroy the Western civilization from within. And that they would do this by uh, the hand of the believer and the unbeliever. And who is the unbeliever? They even describe that. Like-minded, sympathetic organizations on the left in the American political scene. Mm -hmm. Those are the groups that they would align themselves with. And this document was written in uh, the late 80s, around 1989. And it was, but nobody, but it was not really disseminated till 1991. Uh, right. And uh, among the Muslim Brotherhood uh, operatives here in the in North America, and uh, and so it's this this alliance I think has really been nurtured since the early to mid '90s, and uh, but it, it and it's becoming more and more out in the open now. Uh, you see them at the same protests. You see them at the same conferences. Uh, sure, I mean I've seen I've been to like a uh, rally, an anti-Israel rally here in Boston. Um, when uh, I think during the last Hamas war in Gaza, and you know you saw the the Islamists there, and they were generally more respectful and quieter. But then you saw the radical white, predominantly white American yes, college yes, students, yes. the left wingers, the with their knitted caps and you know the usual, and their faces were twisted with rage, you know, and hate yes. and. They had this ashen complexion, you know. They were. They just, are definitely more hateful. Yeah. Yeah, and and I and yet at the same time, I would argue that the Islamist subversion, if you will, this jihad, this uh, civilizational jihad, is actually more more deadly and more dangerous than the communist uh, subversion because of terrorism. It's because there is an implicit understanding that these people are at least indirectly aligned with the terrorists. And the terrorists are so barbaric and so dangerous and so ugly 
you know, when we see displays of them, Trump, you know, beheading Christians standing on a beach somewhere in Libya, and we, we hear what they do to people, that that people are afraid. You know, there, there's a fear factor. You don't want to go against that, including Muslims in this country. They're the ones that are going to be the first ones to have their heads chopped off if they speak up against, against this thing. It's, it's kind of like maybe it's a way the old mafia used to work, too, I suppose. But it's terror that they're aligned with. And because of that, they're more deadly, because at least with the communists, you could speak up and, and identify them. And there could be a congressional hearing, even if it was under attack. They could be exposed and people did stand up and, and denounce them publicly. But with the Islamists, people are afraid to do that. I mean, look at Gert Wilders in, um, in, the, in the, the Netherlands. He's going to have to be under 24-hour guard for the rest of his life because he has spoken up against Islamists in his country. So, you know, they, they have this alliance with outright terrorists, whether it be open or implicit, but it scares everyone. We're afraid to do this. You and I are doing this on this show. I'm not sure that, you know, if, if we did it in the New York Times, not that they carry it, you know, we'd have a target on our back. I mean, it's 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 chilling, you know, for people to, to, to get involved in this. I mean, look at look at Pamela Geller. I mean, it's, uh, you know, she's courageous enough to step out and they're, they're, they're putting up effigies of her and, and, and giving fatwas. So. They intended to behead her. Yes. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Even though these two sides work sort of independently of each other, there is a thin line of connection, and this is how it works. Uh, while these Islamists operate within the political system peacefully, uh, they used the they do use these violent jihadists in the way uh, in a very clever way. Uh, whenever we see a uh, attack. Uh, whether it be, uh, you know, like the OSU, Ohio State attack, uh, right. you know, where that student uh, rammed his car into a bunch of students and then got out and started. Let me, just, let me just interject on that one, because I remember that at the time that Governor Kasich said, I don't know what could have led to this. We have to study right. this. I wonder right. if that's, you know, I wonder how far that study went, you know. Right. It kind of got swept under the rug, I think. That's how it. they all happen now. Uh, when it first happens, we're not sure what the motivation was, they say. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and two or three or months or usually a year. The Chattanooga attack was another great example of that. Sure. The, the young man, uh, Abdul Aziz, he killed four or five unarmed U.S. servicemen at a recruiting naval recruiting office in Chattanooga about uh, – Three years ago, I think it was around this time of the year. Uh, they said they didn't know what motivated that, and 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 it sounded almost believable because he was he came here as a young child, four or five, six years old. He went to American schools. He was on the wrestling team. He was a popular kid. Uh, he seemed like his family definitely didn't seem like it. His family came from a well-adjusted, well-assimilated Muslim family. Mm -hmm. But what happened was uh, he went to college, graduated with an engineering degree, and uh, after that he became more religious, grew out his beard, started wearing the Islamic uh, robes, uh, started going to mosque more regularly. Uh, I don't know if he started listening to you know certain online videos or whatnot or if it came from people at his mosque, but he got – 
radicalized, that mysterious sure. term they throw out there. But none of any, and they, they had all this evidence right away after that attack. They found notes that he, a note he had written uh, pledging himself to ISIS. None of that came out until like a year later when everyone had forgot about it. But going back to my original point, as far as how the the uh, the, uh, the the peaceful civilization jihadists use the violent jihadists, when an attack like that occurs, the official types, like you men mentioned, Governor Kasich, oh, we don't know what you know what yeah. what causes, but people like you and me who can read the tea leaves said this was a jihadist attack. Sure, it it bear all the hallmarks of a classic jihadist attack. What do people like CARE and the civilization jihadists do then? They jump into action on Twitter, Facebook, and the mainstream media, even Fox News, and say, oh, that Robert Spencer or that Pamela Geller, they are Islamophobic because they're trying to right. – they're trying to accuse before the facts are out. They're trying to say that uh, – you know, they're trying to paint with a broad brush and make all Muslims look bad. And so they're able to use these attacks to then turn the tables on the honest journalists, the honest uh, pundits who call it like it is and say it's a jihadist attack. And right. so they're able to demonize their enemies. And it's, it's really it's not a it's not an Islamist. It's not Islamophobia. It's jihadophobia. I would suggest right. And I mean, in the case like of the guy that shot up the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, yes, he was saying, yep. I'm an Islamist, Allah Akbar. He was begging. I mean, and they yes. still said, right? I mean, but what did the media do? What did the media do with that case? They said he was anti-gay and that right. this, you know, maybe he had a gay lover at one time and he is, was just going there to take out his vengeance against gays. No. <laughs> if it, if he had yard. anything... That's right. If he had a, something against gays, it was because it came from his uh, his uh, you know fundamentalist interpretation of certain uh, Islamic verses. And also, they're beginning to. And this is a, one a very insidious development. I've heard left wingers um, chatter online and whatnot. When you mention jihadism in the United States now, they'll say, "Well, what about all of these white guys?" who were right. doing mass shootings, like the guy in Las Vegas and all of these anti-Trump murderers or the, or the, you know, the, the Parkland, uh, Florida shooter and the, the high school and college shooters. Um, and they'll equate that with the, with the subtle implication and in some cases not so subtle that these people are conservatives somehow. We're right. supposed to believe that they're Christians. Uh, right. You know, it goes back to, um, they claim that Timothy McVeigh was a Christian when, in fact, he had nothing to. He was anti-Christian in every sense. You know, he was like pagan, yes, into paganism. Yeah. Exactly. But they, they try to say, well, what America should hold up a, a mirror to itself and look at its own, you know, way of being, and and that this is a Christian thing or this is a conservative thing. Um, what do you say to that? Because uh, you know, I would argue first of all that in in most cases of these shootings. It's people who are products of our liberal education system, our liberal culture. They're people who are on some kind of psych drug, quite frankly. And I believe that's true in almost every case, if not every case. And if you read the fine print of those drugs, it says, might lead to homicide, might lead to suicide. You know, there's a lot of extenuating reasons for the increase yes. in that. 
I but think there's a macro and a micro cause going on there. I think one of the things is the drugs, like you said, that weren't around 20, 30 years ago. And then number two, I think it's just the basic uh, trajectory that our society has taken over the years uh, with moral relativism. You know, children are taught today that they can define their own reality. Yes. Uh, you know, so uh, we, we've 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 nurtured this idea that there's no uh, absolute right or wrong. And, uh, you know, that, that you, uh, 12 year old, you 15 year old, uh, you have the uh, intellectual and moral power to define what is right for you. And so you take that big picture that's taken years to nurture that in society, I think. And it's been happening since probably the sixties or seventies, but now we're bearing, we're reaping the fruit of it now is, 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 is the time that uh, people are going to be suffering as a result of all these lies that have been pumped into people's heads for so long. And those, the original ones who were learning that are now the teachers. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's just going to get worse before it gets better. I'm afraid Chuck, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, this is unfortunately the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah. It's like, whatever you say is true is true because there's no such thing as truth. Right. And that it doesn't matter if you believe like Jeffrey Dahmer. If you say it's true, it's true. And anyone who says otherwise is somehow prejudiced or, or, or a bigot against you. Anyway, Leo, listen, first of all, we're reaching toward the end. So I'd like you to, um, again, let the listeners know where they can read your excellent articles and where they can get your books. Sure. Uh I blog uh, weekly, sometimes two or three articles a week at uh, my website, which is just my name, leohoman.com, L-E-O-H-O-H-M-A-N-N. You can Google Leo Homan blog, and it will probably be the first thing to come up on Google. Uh, uh, And you can get my book on the website. I have some stock of books here, which I can sign and send out, or you can find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Have and, you and the title, the title of that book, yeah. the full title is uh, "Stealth Invasion: Muslim Conquest Through Immigration and Resettlement Jihad." I'll put a link up to it on this YouTube uh, channel. Have you noticed any diminution in traffic since Google and uh, Facebook have started to, uh, you know, do this algorithm check? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, the big site, the big conservative sites like WND and Breitbart and whatnot, I think have have seen a huge yeah. effect from that. Uh, my, I started my own website in December, so mm-hmm. it has not uh, been a long, around that long yet, and I don't know that it's uh, totally on Google's radar, but it's been doing fantastic uh, for a new for a new site. I think it's it's really been doing well. Uh, you know the other, but I haven't tried to monetize it yet. I mean, okay. I, I, I am, you know, I'm just writing and hoping people will send me donations uh, if they are so kind-hearted and want to see it continue. But I don't have any ads up there or anything. Okay, excellent, Leo. Thanks so much again for joining me this afternoon. It's been great. Thank, Thank you. you, Chuck. Take All care. All right.